0: Welcome to Unaborted with Seth Gruber. Thank you for tuning in today. Listen, if you didn't tune in last night for the big digital event that we released with Colson Center and My Faith Votes, you missed out. But don't worry, we're bringing it for you here Monday morning. This was a big digital event that we did entitled How Then Shall We Vote Life and Death on the Ballot, featuring yours truly, as well as Scott Klusendorf and Janique Stewart from Life Training Institute, John Stone Street from the Colson Center for Worldview, and my friend Paul Isaacs from My Faith Votes. And this event was intended to bring moral, spiritual, and political clarity to the Christian in America as they get ready to head to the ballot or send in their ballot. In times of political confusion, which have intensified more so now than seemingly any other time, at least in our life, Christians can feel disillusioned and questions like, how should Christians vote or should we vote at all have become increasingly common. But when one political party is devoted to the premise that an entire class of human beings, image bearers of God can be set aside for mistreatment or slaughter, Christians must vote for life. But you know, there's a lot of political myths that get spread and arguments that get hit at Christians on why they shouldn't vote for life or why they shouldn't vote at all. And so we We leave no stone unturned, and we answer those questions and bring you biblical and political clarity. Buckle up. You don't want to miss this. Here we go.
1: Good evening and welcome. My name is Paul Isaacs. I'm vice president at My Faith Votes, and we're gathering tonight to talk about the topic, how then shall we vote? Life and death on the ballot. At My Faith Votes, we exist to be a bipartisan movement that represents 90 million Americans who stand for one name only, and that's Jesus. Because whether it's local, state, or national elections, we're standing for biblical truth in the public square. And that's by standing to vote, so we see our Judeo Christian values restored. We recognize that voting represents more than a political preference, but a declaration for God. And as we do, we know that by uniting through what we believe, we're also standing against the opposition that stand against us. So whether it's standing for religious freedom, the sanctity of life, which we're talking about tonight, strong families and marriages, or compassion for those in need, we're committed to empowering every believer by informing them and equipping them to vote their values. And that's by providing biblical perspectives to the political issues of the day, as well as resources to help them apply faith as they vote. At My Faith Votes, we do this for one reason because we know that when 90 million believers stand to vote, we're standing in agreement. And the power of unity changes everything. United, we stand so that America stands strong for God. Now, tonight's event is sponsored by My Faith Votes, but it's co-sponsored by the Life Training Institute and the Colson Center. In times of political vision, when there are parties that are claiming moral superiority, Christians can feel disillusioned. Questions of how should Christian votes or whether we should even vote at all sometimes arise. But when the right to life itself is being denied by a particular political party, Christians must vote for life. This digital event will provide political clarity for pro-life Christians to engage. With us tonight is John Stone Street, president of the Colson Center for Christian Worldview and host of Breakpoint. Scott Klusendorf, president of Life Training Institute, a team of professional pro-life speakers, two of which are with us tonight, Janique Stewart, Midwest director, and Seth Gruber, director from the West Coast and host of the podcast, Unaborted with Seth Gruber. Thank you for joining us, panelists. By the way, I want to say this. The, the uh, views expressed by these individuals are their views and not necessarily those of their organization. Am I safe in saying that, panelists? Okay. <laughs> Scott, I'd like to start with you. Why does the pro-life issue trump all other issues?
2: because abortion is an intrinsic evil. And let me draw a distinction here between intrinsic evils and contingent evils. An intrinsic evil is something that is wrong on the face of it, something like murder rape. Those are intrinsic evils. But there are other evils that are contingently so, like war, for example. A war can be just or unjust. Poverty. Uh, These are things where we look at the circumstances surrounding these issues and ask, what is it that's at the heart of this? And then we make a decision whether good or bad. With abortion, we're dealing with an intrinsic evil, and here's why. Abortion is the intentional killing of an innocent human being. It is not, as some would say, a mere preference issue like deciding you like chocolate ice cream over vanilla. It is the intentional killing of an innocent human being. And as Americans, we have to realize we do not have the power to stop injustice in third world countries, but we do have the power to have a say in what happens within our own borders. As Christians, we cannot sit silent while a intrinsic evil is left unchallenged. We must engage that intrinsic evil. That's why the pro-life issue trumps other issues. So
1: we prioritize that above other issues. Does anybody have anything that they'd like to add to that? Well, let me move to you, Um, John. I've heard a lot of pastors, they'll say that they're pro-life, but they don't believe Christians should be telling their brothers and sisters who to vote for. And most recently, a very well-respected pastor, uh, a pastor that I've listened to and had great, uh, I've grown a lot from hearing his sermons, posted something on Facebook that created a social media firestorm, where he said that because the Bible doesn't tell Christians the best way to end or or decrease abortions, Christians therefore have liberty of conscience when it comes to voting and political affiliation. What would you say to that was Tim Keller? What would you say to him about that?
3: Well, you know, look, I'm a big Tim Keller fan like everyone else and have grown dramatically over that. And I appreciate his clear statement that evil itself is uh, and I appreciate his statement that abortion itself is evil. Where I would d- disagree with him right there is that we're not talking about two parties that are each trying to uh, strategically end this evil. Mm-hmm. We're talking about uh, parties that have very different views on whether abortion is, in fact, evil to begin with, mm-hmm. whether it's something that's intrinsically evil, as Scott said, or it's something that's actually an intrinsic good that advances you know, the, the health care of women or that advances... Our our uh, freedom over our reproductive choices or all the other nomenclature that's used around this issue uh, of abortion. And what we've seen are dramatic differences uh, between Uh, politicians and parties uh, in in, in terms of enacting policy. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a a big difference between an administration that advances abortion as reproductive rights, both on the domestic and foreign policy fronts, which we have seen in recent memory, and administrations that do not. Now, now, what we hear oftentimes is, you know, that, uh, that, that a party that's explicitly for abortion or a party that's explicitly against abortion isn't making the difference uh, that their party would even, quote unquote, wish uh, on the, the bottom line abortion numbers, right? So that's what we're hearing. But the reality is there's tons of social factors, uh, community by community, uh, and, uh, that are affecting these abortion numbers. But there is a difference too, and I think this is key. Uh, Between a party that thinks abortion is a fundamental evil that needs to be stopped Mm -hmm. uh, and and a a party that does not or that even talks about it as if it's part of a good package of reproductive freedoms. And, and, And the reason is, is the power of normalization. When an evil is normalized, it's allowed to flourish. It's allowed to go on. And there's just an enormous difference between a party that normalizes
2: something that is evil and a party that doesn't. Go ahead. If I could add just one thing to what John said, I think where Tim Keller made an error, the pro-life movement is not only about reducing the number of abortions. This is not merely a strategy discussion. And John gave an excellent reason why, in principle, that's so. But as a target, what the pro-life movement is aiming at is protecting children in law. A society that sought to reduce racism but still left it legal for you to act in a racist way and segregate your business and hold slavery as a moral good would still be an evil nation even if it reduced racism. So. I think we need to be clear, and this is where I think Tim Keller was not clear. The goal here is legal protection for unborn children. Yes, we want to reduce abortion, but that's not all of it. We also want that legal
0: aspect.
1: So it's, it's a lot deeper than that. So what you yes. saying.
0: Yeah. And I wanted to add something to this too. I did a whole podcast episode on this because I was just so scandalized by his statements because I read his books in college. I was a religious studies major. I've looked up to Tim Keller for years, but you know, Joseph de in his book on the history of abortion, he uses this term, the abortion distortion. And what he means is that there's sort of a atrophy to the moral reflex when it comes to abortion that would never be present on other moral outrages that we all condemn. But when it comes to the issue of abortion, our political, moral, and spiritual clarity seems to go out the window. And I've talked to people who are part of the pastoral team at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City and said that Tim Keller does a lot for the local pregnancy resource center. So he's adopting some level of personal responsibility. But when we get to that political clarity point, the whole house of cards comes crumbling crumbling down. You may be familiar with one of uh, Tim Keller's very popular New York Times article from 2018. It was called, How Do Christians Fit into a Two-Party System? They Don't. And in that article, he pulls no punches in lambasting Christians in the 1850s for their political neutrality on the issue of slavery in fact he goes so far as to say that by refusing to use the political tools given to you to restore personhood to the slave you were actually supporting the social status quo not to speak is to speak not to act is to act god will not hold us guiltless as bonhoeffer says to not be political is actually to be political so he says that political neutrality on the issue of slavery was itself a sin which begs the question wouldn't it have been a greater sin To support the Democratic Party of the 1850s? Of course. But then on abortion, he baits and switches. And while he says unborn children are image bearers, apparently their blood doesn't run deep enough or hot enough for him to encourage believers who... Hang on to his every word to pick up the political tools that our founding fathers gave us that puts power in the hands of the people and use that voice, as Proverbs 31, 8 says, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Use that political voice to restore personhood to preborn image bearers. Keller seems to have forgotten that abortion is wrong for the same reasons that slavery is wrong. It denied personhood to an entire class of image bearers and dehumanizes them in order to justify their mistreatment. And that type of messaging in the church is wreaking a lot of havoc and damage because it leads to apathy and nothing is more deadly than that.
1: We're gonna, we're gonna head down this path uh, even more as we go along, but Janique, I'm gonna go to you for a very loaded, charged, explosive question. <laughs> I hear people say, from both sides, when it comes to a party, they'll say, I don't know how someone can be a blank or can vote blank and be a Christian. So it can be like, I don't know how you could be, possibly be a Republican and, and, and be a, still be a Christian. Or, and I've heard this from people I know that say, I don't know how you can be a Democrat and be a Christian. As it relates to this issue, what would you say to that when, when someone says, and, and I'm going to get really particular here because we are talking about life, and, and so we're going to bring the party into this one. Because one, one looks like it's a little bit more pro-life than the other. Well, can we all agree with that, right? Yes. Can, can, can a pro, is there a place for pro-life Christians in the Democratic Party? Is, can someone be a Democrat you see what I'm saying? Is that, mm-hmm. How would you how would you? Well, go on
4: that? You started, Can someone be a Democrat and...
1: Well, this is the... the I mean, I've heard people I say, I don't know how someone mm-hmm. can be a Democrat mm-hmm. and be a Christian. I've also heard the other one. Mm-hmm. But, but since we're talking about life, what, yes. what would you say to that?
4: So a couple of things. And just to kind of simplify it and bring clarity to the issue, I think one of the reasons why sometimes, just to give them the benefit of the doubt... I think it's really important that we recognize the reason why some people feel that way is because number one, they're not aware of the platform that each party represents. Just as an example, if you actually do your due diligence and do your research, it's very clear when you actually look at the Republican platform, it actually says that we affirm the sanctity of human life and that they believe that the unborn has a fundamental right to life. They also go on to expound upon that, that the right to life is inalienable. It doesn't come from government. It comes from God. And that's what our forefathers said. When you actually look at the Declaration of Independence, the very founding documents, and it's very interesting because it actually says, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident. We all know that. But then it says that the inalienable rights that come from our creator, right, the right to life liberty and the pursuit of happiness, but I actually like the next sentence that people often forget or they negate. It actually says, to secure these rights, government was instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That's we, the people. So if we don't know what the platform is, then we're certainly not going to really know how they prioritize the issues, and the policies that go along with that. Now, in contrast, and this is a stark contrast, we have one side protecting life, defending it, and affirming the inalienable right to life. The other side, right now, the Democrat platform is very clear that they support not only a woman's right to abortion, but they like to use euphemisms, which I will come back to because I think that's actually part of the problem. But they like to use words like reproductive health, but they believe in codifying Roe v. Wade and a lot of pushing back the pro-life gains that we've actually made. So I think when someone says, oh, I'm not really sure how someone can vote Democrat or vote Republican, my question to them is, well, how are you prioritizing issues? And first and foremost, how do you believe the Bible prioritizes issues? Do we prioritize life? Does God prioritize life? In fact, even when you look at, even in the book of Genesis, I mean, when you think about after the world, when, when God, we had the flood, then after we came back, then in Genesis 9, it actually talks about what happens, the penalty, that's ultimately where the death penalty came from. He who takes life, right? Mm -hmm. Well, well, basically, that's where the death penalty came in that if if they kill someone, then his life will also be shed. Now, with that being said, that actually shows the the priority that God placed on the value of human life. Mm -hmm. Now, one last thing I want us to consider we also see throughout scripture that we're called to love God, we're also called to love our neighbor. Mm-hmm. We see even in the parable of the Good Samaritan in, in Luke ten twenty five through 37, where it talks about who was the neighbor. Now, we had people in that story that actually, they were faith-based people, and they, they walked the other side. They did not want to either be involved. Maybe they didn't want, because it's messy sometimes, it might even be inconvenient. The Samaritan, the good Samaritan, he did intervene. And I believe that is what we're called to do. And with our vote, we have the power not just to intervene, we have the power to restrain evil. And I believe that it's incumbent upon us to restrain that evil, not... Not prioritize other issues. And I will be very direct here. If you are prioritizing anything else over human life, when we're talking about the genocide or a Holocaust that occurs in the womb, mm. then you're not as pro-life as you think you are. Mm.
1: Wow. I, I love it that you brought in the Constitution. Oh. Uh, I, and because I think sometimes Christians are afraid to bring that in. I don't know if any of the panelists would have ever run across that. It's almost like we can use the Bible. We can talk about. I want to stick to the gospel, but when it comes to this issue of the Constitution, that almost seems maybe nationalistic or something. I don't. I, I don't know if you've ever run into that, but but uh, thank you for bringing that in because as far as man-written documents, you know, documents that were put together by men. I'm not sure because I, I put the Bible at a different level. Bible's inspired the word of God, it wasn't written by men. But as far as written, documents written by men, that is as good as it gets.
3: Wait, wait, you don't even have to. Uh necessarily value the constitution to still think you have some sort of a duty as a Christian to uphold it. Here, here's why. If I were born in a different time in a different place, then I'd have a similar responsibility to steward the cultural uh, context in which I find myself. This is a kind of a little known verse that's hidden in Paul's speech uh, to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17. And he says that, that God has determined the exact times that people live in the boundaries of their dwelling place. So we don't find ourselves. In this time and in this place and under this document called the Constitution by accident, God actually put us here. So the stewarding of these ideas that are actually good ideas, as as was already mentioned, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, how they understood pursuit of happiness, where these rights come from, these are all things that are worthy of stewarding. And so we can talk all day long about loving God and loving our neighbor But if we don't get tangible to who our neighbor actually is, right? Isn't that how Jesus actually responded? You know, who is your neighbor? Uh, It's the person that you didn't think was your neighbor. And and, and this is why political involvement is not anti-Christian. It's actually a way of loving God and loving neighbor Mm -hmm. because elections have consequences. Policies have consequences. Policies either protect the God-given human dignity and rights of others or not. This is something I think a lot of people miss because we live now in the late, you know, uh, we, we live now in the early 21st century where the very idea of human dignity is taken for granted, as if that's always been a thing. It hasn't always been a thing. In fact, throughout most of human history, uh, uh, Human, the the idea of universal human dignity was unthinkable. Mm -hmm. Frederick Nietzsche, the atheist of all people, actually gave sourced that into the Christian understanding of what it means to be human. You know that we're all made in the image of God. So, so, so I think the mistake we make is to think, well, human dignity kind of goes on forever, and everyone that says they're for human dignity, you know, you know, actually believes in human dignity. No, the most common expression is. The most the most common way this is lived out is human dignity for my group or my people, but not for you. Mm-hmm. And, and it's Christianity that grounds it into some sort of universal identity that transcends whether you're in the womb or out of the womb, whether you're a part of this race or that race, uh, you know, this uh, uh, sex or that sex. This is actually what it means uh, to be human. And this is where God has put us in this time and in this place.
2: I think that the Declaration of Independence should never be pitted in a competitive sense against the Bible because the Declaration is conveying biblical truth. Okay. It's not doing it with chapter and verse. But think about what the Declaration says, the very passage Jeanique mentioned a moment ago. Right now, the reason why the abortion issue is so heated we have two rival worldviews competing with each other. The first is the performance worldview that says your dignity springs from your immediately exercisable capacities, your ability to have immediate self-awareness or feel pain or have cognitive ability or the ability to interact with your environment. The rival view, which we hold to as Christians, is the endowment view that says our value does not spring from our performances. It's It springs from God who intrinsically endows us with rights and value. And because we are image bearers, we don't have to prove it. John mentioned dignity. If you think about a beach bum and a university professor, uh, both have dignity, but it's a different kind of dignity in one sense. The beach bum does not have attributed dignity, something he's earned through hard work while the professor does. But both men have equal intrinsic dignity, meaning they equally bear the image of the creator. Our culture has lost that distinction. They don't understand that That distinction. And as a result, the only dignity they recognize is the performance-based dignity. And that makes it very easy to rule out people who don't measure up. That's a dangerous road to go down, I would think. So I want to get to
1: Seth right now. And I want to get, we've talked around it, but I want to hear what you, what you think it actually means to be pro-life. Dive deep into that for us
0: all. Yeah. Thank you, Paul. And I actually did a debate very recently, a podcast debate hosted by the Christian Research Journal with a a professor of philosophy at Eastern Kentucky University on this question, what does it mean to be pro-life? And for the people tuning into this, if you, you don't understand this distinction, there's sort of this debate going on in the country and within Christian evangelicalism over what it means to be pro-life. So the historic view of the pro-life position is that it's always wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. Abortion does that, therefore abortion is wrong. And so we're not going to divert our time, our resources, our funding towards chasing other, every other extension of justice or solving every other form of societal ills. Now, this would be the whole life or consistent life ethic. Maybe you're familiar with that. It says something like, and this is where you hear people say, you're not really pro-life unless... A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And usually they fill in a bunch of leftist virtues from a leftist worldview. They'll say, well, you can't actually oppose killing children in the womb unless you support open borders, universal healthcare, universal basic income. You say America is systemically racist and you're focusing on solving poverty. Let me say what I've heard in the in pro-life work. It's, you're not really pro-life. All you
1: care about is the baby. You don't care about right. the mom. You don't care about the life after it right. and the story that she was born in. Keeps, keep going.
0: Yeah, and, and I'll get to why that's false. But the first thing I like to point out is that, is that even if that were true, that's a heck of a lot better position than their position. Right, so they call us pro-birth, right? They say, you don't care about the baby after it's born. You just want to see it be born. Again, I'm going to get to why that's false, but I'm, I, isn't that better than your position, which is that we can kill them through all nine months of pregnancy for any reason or no reason at all? So even if I didn't adopt personal responsibility to care for the quality of the life of the child after it's born, that's a much better position in a moral hierarchy than your position. So I like to put it right back to them. But it's it's just patently false, right? According to Pregnancy Help News, there are at least twice as many pregnancy resource centers as abortion clinics, at least twice. Some people think even more. And the vast majority of these pregnancy resource centers, which you're very familiar with, Paul, because of your background, provide a whole cornucopia of Care and services for the mother, the child, the father before and after birth. They offer counseling and and uh, parenting classes, free diapers, free baby boutique clothes, sometimes even food and housing. So it's just patently false. And then of course the Catholic Church, which is, I mean, the biggest religious institution within the pro life movement does a very good job caring for quality of life for people after they're born. So this debate is actually very dangerous because what it does is it tells pro-lifers that if they want to live up to their position, they have to do more, meaning that their pro-life beliefs must apply to more than just abortion. And I love to say, really, so I guess the American Cancer Society isn't really anti-cancer because they only focus on solving one disease and not many. I guess Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln weren't really anti-slavery because they only tried to abolish one form of evil, those bigots. I mean, this is scandalous, right? No other movement or organization gets this critique. It's only pro-lifers. So that leaves me with this conclusion, that I don't think they are, as Hadley Arcus once said, possessed of a lively sense that there are real human beings getting killed in these surgeries. Because if they were, they wouldn't be trying to divert personnel, time, and funding away from a movement that's already underfunded and understaffed to pursue every other extension of justice. We in our personal lives as Christians believe, as Scott Klusendorf wonderfully says, have a broad and inclusive ethic to love our neighbors. And in our personal lives, we must do that if we're obeying scripture. But that doesn't mean that the movement committed to restoring personhood to preborn image bearers and preventing their dismemberment must care for other people or apply their beliefs to more than just abortion.
1: I want to follow up with this question. This is very recent in the last few days. John Legend and his wife lost a baby through miscarriage. Planned Parenthood put out a a statement that I thought was something that I'd like to hear any of you all uh, weigh in on. They said, we are grieving with John and his wife about the loss of their son. I thought that was very interesting. Do you want to speak to that? Like, how is that?
4: Well, I think that that the reason they did, well, first and foremost, they are huge advocates of Planned Parenthood to begin with. And I also think that there is this mindset that it's a human being if you want it. Mm -hmm. And because they had tweeted about it and posted about it, saying, in fact, they named their son that, I think they named him Jack. I think that's what it is. I think he was around like 20 weeks when they lost him, which of course is sad. And I'm glad that they did respond, but I think it's very interesting that if they wanted the child, then it's a, it's a child. But if they did not want it, they would have been fine to accept money to kill that very same Jack. And so I think that there is this inconsistency that people think our value is based upon someone else's feelings but someone else's feelings do not determine our value. we That's intrinsic. Yeah. We're made in the image of God. And so as image bearers, it doesn't matter what you think of you. Same thing during the time of slavery, regardless of someone else's opinion of that human being, they were still an image bearer of God and they retained their value through time and change. I, I just felt
1: this cognitive dissonance mm-hmm. when I read this statement, because I wanted to grieve with a couple. Of course. That had a miscarriage and appeared to be grieving. But then I heard the phrase, the loss of their son by the parent, it actually humanized their child.
4: Well, of course they're hypocritical. I mean, of course they're, they're blatantly hypocritical because I mean, let's be honest, they are wealthy, planned parenthood. They make a living by killing human beings through all nine months of pregnancy. And even if they could save, that child, they don't and they won't. And so that's part of the problem. But I do believe that there is, it's blatant hypocrisy. But I think that I I am wondering, to be honest with you, I'm kind of wondering in the future, what impact will Jack's death have on Chrissy and her husband? And I really think that as believers, we need to be praying for them that their hearts will be Soften because I believe there's actually a picture of them even holding the baby and the reality is that is a human being It's not a blob of tissue or a clump of cells That was a human being and I believe there's a picture of her holding him and then John legend her husband right over her shoulders So it shows the humanity and they affirmed humanity Even though they make a practice of dehumanizing and devaluing the very human beings they kill
3: you know, I, I've long thought that there was maybe a troll at Planned Parenthood running the Twitter account because this isn't this isn't the first time that what has been tweeted out has been so observably contradictory to what they, should believe in order to justify what they do to 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 to, uh, to, to make most of their money, right. uh, I, you know. Every Mother's Day, uh, you can find this. Uh, every time they step out of the uh, abortion lane and comment on you know immigration or children separated at borders or one after another. I mean, there have been so many of these in the past. I really appreciated you mentioning what is this going to do to Chrissy, uh, Tigan? I don't even yeah. know how you say her name, later on down the road. Because w- what this demonstrates, however, is that when you're dealing with something as um, evil as the taking of an innocent preborn life, you're not going to then deal with rationality. Uh, evil is inherently irrational. That this is the disordering of God's good creation, and so when you talk about really, I mean, this is like when we go back and read apologists for slavery or or, or or you know genocide, and you listen to what they actually said, uh, and it just is—you just kind of sit there and you go, I cannot believe people actually. Bought into this. Right. But that tells you: A, people don't make moral decisions based on their rationality. And some evils can get so deeply embedded. And with the, the issue of abortion, we're talking about this becoming embedded through our embrace of sexual autonomy, right? Ultimately. Now, this actually, in a strange sort of way, speaks against another myth that Christians are often. Told, or they often tell themselves, which is you should fight abortion outside of politics. Mm. In other words, you should you should care for all these women, and you should you know fight for their lives. But you shouldn't do. But politics is a dirty business, and you shouldn't get involved in this. Um, Uh, Look, there are times when a culture is so confused because of embracing irrational evil, you have to have a political line drawn in the sand. Look, do we think most of the Southern states were ready for the Civil Rights Act in the 1960s? No, they needed a political line in the sand that then moved the culture. I believe, as my mentor Chuck Olson said, that most of the time, Politics is downstream from culture, but sometimes you need it upstream from the culture. And, you know, the, the irrationality that was surrounding that whole story of that post, and I watched this going, wow, uh, tells us we need political stops to literally protect us from ourselves, protect us from our bad decisions and our moral irrationality that has dominated. The, listen, Planned Parenthood has been caught in such a despicable circumstances, whether we're an abortionist and the lack of regulation. And I mean, look, we can talk about the videos that revealed that w- their willingness to, to sell body parts. Uh, we can talk about all kinds of ways they're willing to break the law. All of the videos about recommending minors go across state lines to avoid parental note. I mean, listen, what explains the fact that they still exist? When so many other organizations and so many other movements have been just basically uh, wiped off the map because of bad behavior, there's something here beyond rationality. This is why, uh, listen, the least
2: we can do is vote about this. Yeah. Yeah. The least we can do. Yeah. A lot of Christians get confused, too. They, they, they think, well, you know, the way we change culture is to preach the gospel. We shouldn't look Hear at that. politics. Yeah. And what they're doing, though, is limiting God, because God actually gave us two ways to restrain evil in the culture. The preaching of the gospel that renovates the human heart and makes it right with God is one way you can restrain evil. But God also gave us civil law to restrain the heartless. And Martin Luther King put it real well. The law cannot make the white man love me, but it can sure stop him from lynching me, and that matters. So the purpose of political involvement isn't necessarily to convert the culture to Christ. Only the gospel does that. But we need civil law to restrain the heartless. And when we, as Christians, check out of that responsibility, we're in essence limiting God and saying, no, the only way this culture is going to change is if people get saved. When in fact, God's given us another avenue here, which is the, the control of the heartless through civil law.
4: You know, I think that's, that's an excellent point. I also want to bring in something else. I think perhaps we as Christians sometimes forget what our role is in the culture. We're to be in the world, not of it, but we're also to be salt and light. We also have to remember that who is it that even created government? God created government. The problem is when we try to make government, our God, and when we forget the principles that he gave us. But there's one other aspect. I think it's really interesting when people say, when it comes to abortion specifically, that the church should not get involved. Even when you look throughout history, William Wilberforce, the church actually helped to restrain the evil of slavery. Not just that, but even when you look not just with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but other pastors, in fact, there's a city in France called Le Chambon-sur-Lignon, and they were very well known for having saved thousands of Jews. Now, this was a pastor. In fact, his name is Pastor André Tocme. And what he did is he instructed the entire community. And they were Protestants, but they're the ones, an entire Protestant community through the church saved thousands. Now, some were saying, oh, but that's political. We really shouldn't get involved. Same thing, same argument when it came to slavery. Well, we shouldn't get involved. But because they recognized the inherent dignity of the black man or of the Jew, that's why they were compelled to act because that's their neighbor. And just as the church was unapologetic, in interfering and intervening for their neighbor, we have a moral responsibility to love all of our neighbors. But we also have to be very honest. There's only one group of human beings that it's legal to kill right now. That in fact, they actually want to make our tax dollars pay for it. They want to continue funding the organization Planned Parenthood. So there's only one group that, as I said, it's legal to kill to the tune of nearly 1 million every single year, 60 million since 1973 Roe v. Wade opinion. And so I think it's it's critically important that we remember if we're to love our neighbor, killing them is not an option. And our silence is basically giving approval to kill the neighbor. I mean, again, we're called to love our neighbor, not kill them.
3: And listen, we've defined down love neighbor. To be nice to neighbor.
2: Yeah. Right? I mean that, that's what most Christian No, and that's what yeah. most
3: Christians mean. Right. Like for, for Dietrich Bonhoeffer to love his Jewish neighbor meant more than just smiling as they walked down the street when other Germans would not. Like he had to do what he could do. And so much of scripture talks about sin not just being what we commit, but the good that we failed to do. Again, voting is not, you know, my, 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 my as my buddy in Tennessee would say, this ain't rocket surgery. You know, this is <laughs> this is like this is a tangible, easy way to love your neighbor, uh, and, and, and uh, we've, we, we've got to actually put some flesh on what that concept means.
0: And I, I'll add one more thing to that political clarity before before we move on, and I, I mean, aren't these guys great? I mean, what can I really add? But you know, Aristotle once told us that statecraft is soulcraft, and what he was saying was that law functions as a teacher. So in 1850, and before, of course, in relegating slavery to the realm of legal, It was actually communicating that it was permissible, right? Law functions as a teacher. Do you think when we uh, banned slavery that everyone stopped being racist? Uh, No, we had a civil rights movement nearly 100 years later. Took a long time. But we needed that political lesson to say these things are not acceptable in a civilized society, so much so that there will actually be legal consequences if you treat human beings like this. So unfortunately, even when we succeed in restoring personhood to the preborn and making their slaughter illegal, it's going to take a long time to rebuild a culture of life, but it will take a lot longer if we don't make it illegal. <laughs> Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying this conversation between Paul Isaacs, myself, John Stone Street, Scott Klusendorf, and Janique Stewart. They're really something, aren't they? Incredible people fighting for life. And I hope as you're listening to this, you're thinking, come on, yes, amen. Those are the answers that I've been seeking for. And that's why we did this event. We wanna bring that clarity to our brothers and sisters in Christ who are disillusioned by our politics and so are either refraining from engaging in the political life or sometimes even casting their vote for the party of abortion. So please share this episode with people. If you're thinking, man, if only I could get more people to hear this content, then consider becoming a patron of the show by going to patreon.com forward slash unaborted, patreon.com forward slash unaborted. And you'll see some really exciting tiers there. And the different tiers that you support the show out will give you different perks that you'll have access to to get more equipped to defend life. It's for you for everyone, but your help as a patron enables us to reach more people. All righty, give the show a rating interview. Let us know what you think. We're going to get right back to this incredible conversation.
1: Great point. And I, would, and I think we would all agree that even, even the civil rights movement didn't make people non-racist. That's a hard issue, but we needed to to do that. I'm gonna go right back at you, Janique, with a question. What would you say to the Christian that says, I'm pro-life, but I could never vote for a guy who calls people names and says crass things over and over again, blah, blah, blah. Because we hear that, right?
4: Great question. I think it's really important for us to consider several issues there. Number one, again, going back to, is there a priority? Does God even have a priority? And so I think when we even think about that question, We also have to consider, am I going to punish an entire group of human beings because my feelings get hurt when he says something? We're not punishing Trump or or whoever it is that we're talking about by not voting for them. We're actually punishing an entire group of human beings that are going to be, sorry, lynched in the womb. And so we have an opportunity to vote in a way that will save the most lives, but I'm not going to do that because my feelings are hurt. I'm sorry, but it's almost like saying, I'm sorry, but we kind of need to grow up a little bit. Mm -hmm. In addition to that, and I know that doesn't sound very kind and loving, so sorry, but I really think we have to think about that, that am I allowing my feelings to get hurt And because of that, I'm not going to do what I know I need to do. James 4, 17 tells us that he who knows the good thing to do or the right thing to do and doesn't do it, to him it's sin. We know what we should do. In fact, many will say, I am pro-life. And they'll still say that because of what someone says, because of their tweet or whatever the case may be, they're not going to do what's right. And I think that that's... That's a very sad commentary. And again, not to be mean at all, but I do think we have to make people accountable, not only for the things they say when they say something like that, I think we need to turn it right back to them, but I also think we have to consider what's going to happen. We have an opportunity to restrain evil. And I'm about to put in office someone who, number one, the platform, we know the platform says, we believe in a woman's right to abortion, on demand through all nine months of pregnancy. Second, we also know that they're very clear about funding not only Mexico City policy with other countries, they're also very clear even if a baby survives an abortion. Right now, we have people that are running for office that are saying, I'm not going to protect the life of that human being. And so that's why we have, of course, with the executive order through President Trump, he signs an executive order that says when a baby is born alive, we're going to protect that child. And so we have people trying to reverse things like that, even try and reversing parental consent, parental notification, which we do know actually drive down numbers. Mm-hmm. And so when someone says something like that, I think we have to call them out and remind them of what's at stake because it's not their feelings. It's someone's life that's at stake.
3: Can I can I just say as well that that question ignores that the election is about more than just who's in the White House? Uh, not, not that that doesn't matter. It absolutely matters. But look, every election involves uh, the top of the ticket all the way through to ballot initiatives. And all of these things matter. And when it comes to the legality of abortion, and I think in particular with the potential remaking of the Supreme Court and what that might do to turn back Roe v. Wade, then more than it, than it is even now – uh, fighting and stopping abortion is going to move to the state and local level. Uh, it, so it's going to matter. For example, in our state, my state of Colorado, you know, we're having a conversation that most of the states have already settled, but we're one of seven or eight that still allows abortion literally up to the moment yeah. of birth. We have a famous late-term abortionist that, in heyday, was doing two hundred or so a year. Like we can stop that. And, and, and that choice is relatively clear, right? Uh, you know, d- even if what's happening at the top of the ticket is is not. Who's in Congress decides what kind of funding options go to organizations that advance the killing of pre- pre-born humans? Uh, there, there are, uh, you know, who's on at the state level office, who's a governor is going to determine in many places who's on local courts and what what decisions are made in local courts, then those are the ones that end up going to the Supreme Court. So all of these things matter. There's more than just the very noisy race at the top. Now, again, I'll say that that race matters as well. And it matters not just because of the personality or even the character of who's running. Um, My mentor said this, I'll say it again, character matters. Character matters for for a, a candidate. Policy also matters for a candidate company matters for a candidate, especially at the presidential race. Every single candidate comes with about 3,000 other people. And that's not even his judicial appointments. That's just talking about who's filling department heads and so on. And we have seen a dramatic difference uh, in who runs the Department of Education or who runs the Department of Health and Human Services between the last administrations and, and and, and, and this administration. So all of that has to be calculated. And then platform, as has been said, so we've got character, we've got uh, a party, we've got platform, we've got uh, policies, and we've got the company that come around that. And, and, and so all of that has to be considered at the top of the race. But good heavens, look at the rest of the ticket. Uh, There are enormously important issues that are going to be decided upon uh, that have nothing to do with how late we stay up on November, whatever it is, uh, you know, way past our bedtime.
4: Can I just say one other aspect to that? I actually had this conversation with someone on the plane when I flew into Orlando on Thursday and a lady was sitting next to me and I had a mask. I said, unborn lives matter. And so, of course, we got into a huge discussion, but it was kind of the same question of how could you even vote for someone who says such offensive things, et cetera? There's no way I could vote for him. And so I did say this to her and it didn't get her to stop and think. I said, miss, I said, can I ask you a question? I said, do you identify though as pro-life? And she said, yes, I do. She's like, I told you about like your mask. I'm like, okay, no, 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 we're on the same page. I said, but imagine if we were in the 1850s and it wasn't Lincoln that was on the ticket. It was Trump back then. But he was saying the same things that you find offensive. He was tweeting the same thing as tweet, tweets were available. You have know, Twitter, you know, was out back then. I said, but would you tell me? Are you telling me then that you would not have voted to end slavery or vote for a candidate such as Trump who would have ended slavery because your feelings were hurt by something he said? Yes. And she said, Oh, I never. I, I. That's a different way to look at. It. And I said, No, that's the only way to look at it. Is you're saying that evil that we have to restrain evil essentially. And you're saying that you're pro-life. I don't think anybody would have ever voted that way back in the 1850s saying, well, I'm so sorry, but Lincoln hurt my feelings. They knew that slavery was wrong. It was a non-negotiable and abortion should also be a a, non-negotiable.
1: Such a great point. I'm really struggling over who to ask this next question to. Um, But what I guess I'll do is I'll, I'll go to Scott if I could. I'm gonna ask you this question. Since we all long to see the end of abortion, should pro-lifers only vote for candidates and laws that ban abortion outright? That's kind of a, a controversial statement that I am question. Are we comprising our beliefs if we vote for a politician that will allow exceptions in pro-life laws? So this vote of can I vote for, let's say, a pro-choice Republican, If you see what I'm saying? Is there ever a case that can be made for that?
2: Well, there's two questions there. Let me take the second one first. At the legislative level, politics is party-driven, not individual-driven. So I'm going to speak only for myself here. If in my district I have a pro-life Democrat running against a pro-abortion Republican at the legislative level, I'm talking House, Senate, I'm going to vote for the Republican even if he is pro-abortion, here's why. The pro-life Democrat will never get a chance to cast a pro-life vote if his party is in power because the Democrat party will absolutely squash any attempt to pass a pro-life bill. Not only that, they'll promote bad bills that will put children's lives at risk. 90% of Republicans are gonna support a pro-life bill, and I'm not worried about one or two that won't. So I'm going to vote pro-life by making sure we have the party apparatus in place to advance legislation. Uh, Now, the the first question you asked really comes to this question, what does it mean to vote pro-life? And here's my answer. You vote pro-life to advance the good and restrain the evil insofar as possible given current political realities that are in front of you. So if I have a choice to restrain the evil of abortion, even if it's not an outright ban, and I do not have the votes, do not have the political power to save all children, then I'm going to work to limit the evil insofar as possible given what's confronting me. And I thought Pope Benedict, when he was actually Cardinal Ratzinger, made this point very well uh, when he talked about about pro-life politicians who vote for bills that are less than perfect they're not compromising their beliefs if they remain committed to saving all children but recognize that in a given uh, election cycle they can't do that so then what their next duty is is to restrain the evil and promote the good as much as they can
1: A very thoughtful answer thank you for that to go to you Seth Many of our opponents and by the uh, opponents, I mean, pro-choice, uh, and even those who identify as pro-life claim that if you look at the data, abortion rates actually declined during democratic administrations. These people then tell you that the pro-life movement or tell the pro-life movement that if they really cared about saving babies, we talked about this, they would vote Democrat for Democrats whose policies help decrease abortions. Right. Uh, first, is that true? The second, is this an acceptable strategy?
0: Right. Good question. So if you actually look at the at the data and the numbers of abortions, you'll see it actually declining for quite some time across Republican and Democratic presidential, you know, presidents and their whole administration. So you know it's kind of it's kind of confusing to tell someone that because it's actually been decreasing across party lines. So that's one thing to point out. And that's good. And I think we have a lot of evidence to believe that that is due to pro-life efforts and pro-life legislation. Michael J. New at the Charlotte Lozier Institute has done great research showing the impact of lives saved by state legislation that saves lives. But secondly, it's it misunderstands the, the whole debate, right? Because we are... <laughs> The goal of the pro-life movement is not to decrease abortions. We're going to celebrate that if that happens. You know, but the goal of the pro-life movement is to make abortion illegal and unthinkable. So question for our, our, those who identify as pro-life but say, i got to vote for Democrats because they're going to lower abortion. Does the Democratic Party want to make abortion illegal and unthinkable? Because you say you're pro-life, then you have to support the goals of the pro-life movement, <laughs> the restoring person into the pre-born and making it illegal to kill them and having legal penalties if you do kill them. Well, does the Democratic Party want to make abortion illegal? Um, well, considering that it's part of their platform to protect abortion through point of birth and only three Democratic senators voted to protect infants who survived botched abortions, I'm going to go with no. Do they want to make it unthinkable? Well, considering that they refer to abortion as reproductive justice and the unborn child is in blobs of tissue and merely the property of their mother, just like that same party said that another class of human beings in the 1800s were property of someone else, I'm also gonna go with no, right? So the goals of the pro-life movement cannot be accomplished by a party committed to protecting abortion through point of birth. And remember, statecraft is soulcraft. So in, in saying this thing is legal, you're saying it's permissible, it's acceptable in a civilized society, and the preborn is not someone that we want to protect. So what does that teach the next generation, each generation that we want to hand the reins of the pro-life movement to so that they'll end it? Well, it teaches that next generation that it is reproductive justice. It's feminism. It's women's rights to kill children in the womb. So as long as that party continues to entrench fetal bigotry in the society, then we cannot restore personhood to the child and we can't accomplish our goals, which is to protect them in the womb because abortion is always wrong.
2: There's also a statistical problem with the claim that the rate goes down under Democrats. People who say this always ignore the presidency of Jimmy Carter. They start with Reagan. The rates went up 33% under Jimmy Carter, and they went up only 1% under Reagan. Reagan actually had a, a massive decline in the rate of increase in abortion. Not only that, they failed to point out that under Bill Clinton, the CDC no longer required states to report their abortion data. California Maryland, the District of Columbia opted out of reporting. Where do the majority of abortions happen in this country? Some of those states, California, is a huge truckload of abortions every year, and so Clinton got credit for lowering the abortion rate. He didn't lower any abortion rates. California just quit reporting its data, and that's the math behind this. It's a it's a false claim all the way through. As soon as you look at
0: it. And the second thing we have to we have to point out is that within this critique, vote for Democrats because they decrease abortion. You'll hear something like this. You'll hear something like, "Well, you see, pro-lifer." Democrats address the underlying causes of why women choose abortion in the first place. So if you're really pro-life, wouldn't you want to address the status, the heart of the matter, because if that's what's driving women to get abortion, well, let's go to the root. So that's what they say. Now, again, I'm not even sure that we can make that case, but that's what they're saying. But this is, this is scandalous. We would never say this about any other issue because there, there are underlying causes to all other types of certain behavior, but that doesn't mean it's misguided to pass laws against them, right? Um, there's, there's, you know, we could say, well, the underlying cause of spousal abuse is, is problems with men's psychology, so we need counseling for men. Well, shouldn't we make it illegal for men to beat their wives first and then maybe deal with the underlying causes of what leads them to do that in the first place? It's scandalous, right? And by the way, uh, racist Democrats said similar things about the slave, about slavery. They said that, well, abolitionist states are actually having higher rates of racial bigotry, racial violence because those pesky anti-slavery Republicans are trying to ban slavery, and so it's creating tension in states that are very used to owning human beings and treating them like cattle. So if you were really anti-slavery, you'd vote for the Democratic Party, which will decrease instances of racial bigotry and hate crimes. Unbelievable, scandalous, but if, as soon as it, this is why, the abortion distortion. There is a moral atrophy happening In our moral reflex on abortion that is not happening on any other issue. So what does that really tell us? It tells us that some of these individuals who claim to be our allies, and certainly those who claim to be our opponents, don't actually believe the unborn child is a full human. So that's why we have to pass laws that function as a teacher, while also engaging in the cultural wars to make our case in the public square, showing the humanity of the child, the inhumanity of abortion, and illustrating that any argument used to justify the taking of unborn human life cannot be confined to the womb. Those same justifications can be used to justify killing born people as well.
1: Wow. We have uh, had a lot of information there, and it's been amazing for me. I wonder, we have have a, a live audience with us tonight that may or may not have some questions, and we have, I think, a microphone that we could get to them. And just for anyone that has a question, if you could just raise your hand, we're not going to put you on camera, but we would like to hear any questions that might be there for the panelists or thoughts. Okay. Question number one from my friend Luke. Thank you panel. Very well done.
0: All right. So I've seen a lot of transitions in the pro abortion argument go from, um, human being, where it was Columbus cell is now human being, but now they're transitioning to personhood.
1: Can you speak to that argument? Do do you know which argument I'm talking about? Yeah, okay.
2: Yeah, anytime somebody says to you, the unborn are human, but they're not persons, I want you to look them in the eye and say, what's the difference? Have you ever met a human that's not a person? Those of you with teenagers don't answer, but everybody else, Uh you get the idea. And every answer they give you for why the unborn don't count will, number one, prove too much. It will disqualify newborns, as Seth pointed out. Let's say, for example, they pick out self-awareness as decisive. We now know from the latest research that children are not ultimately self-aware until about age two. So the argument would not only justify abortion, it would justify killing toddlers. Number two, and this is key for our society, our society is obsessed with equality. These arguments that lay out a personhood threshold that you have to reach actually result in savage inequality, and here's why. Say we pick out self-awareness as decisive rather than our common human nature. If you have more self-awareness than me, you're more of a person with rights than me, and you can throw human equality on the ash heap of history. So you can You can use this to show people that the very equality they want, they're not going to get with these personhood arguments. They'll actually get the opposite of what they want.
1: C- Scott, could you explain this argument? This person, like what uh, for the average person watching tonight, may yeah. not even understand the, uh, the nature of the argument.
2: They argue that the unborn are biologically human, but they're not persons. And to be a person, you have to have a moral fact about you, like self-awareness or ability to interact with your environment. And if you lack that, you don't really count. Lincoln did a great job showing that these types of arguments actually work against the very people making them. Lincoln said this to those that supported slavery. He said, quote, man A is white, man B is dark. Oh, it is skin color then? The fair-skinned man having the right to enslave the dark-skinned man? Take care. By that rule, you're a slave to the first person you meet with skin fairer than your own. You say it's not skin color. It's a matter of intellect. The white man having superior intellect to the dark man, take care again. By that rule, you're a slave to the first person you meet with an intellect superior to yours. I think you see what Lincoln's doing here. These arguments result in savage inequality and prove way more than their proponents want them to. They want to narrowly target this to their chosen victim class. You can't do that. Once you you remove a solid foundation for human dignity, that is, we are all value valuable equally because we equally bear the image of our maker and our rights are grounded in God's provision that way. Once you throw that out, it all becomes subjective. Those who are in power will determine what traits
0: uh, matter and might will make right. That's right. And by the way, that's why I tell people that you should care about ending abortion for two reasons, even if you're pro-choice. Firstly, you should because if you believe in human equality, human rights have to be granted to all humans. When does human life begin—the moment of conception? So you should care about ending abortion actually for um, unselfish reasons because those are human beings; they have dignity. But I, I tell other people, particularly pro-choice individuals, and this is working off what Scott just said, that you should care about ending abortion for selfish reasons, right? As Lincoln pointed out, when in, by accepting the institution of slavery. Southern states were putting into place the premises that would justify their own enslavement because the differences used to justify slavery, as Scott just said, were differences between black and white people. Similarly, the unborn child differs from us in the same ways that we differ from one another. So the argument to kill unborn human beings cannot be confined to the womb. So the pro-choice individual in accepting the institution of abortion on demand And the premises that make it plausible in the first place, namely that not all humans are created equal, they are also putting into place the premises that will justify their own enslavement. In other words, if we can kill unborn children for having less desires, well, desires come in varying degrees. If you are a Buddhist and you accomplish nirvana and you have no desires, can I kill you? If I have, have I not violated your rights? I guess not. And we could go down and down the line any argument used to justify the taking of unborn human beings can be used to justify killing born people as well so pro-choice individuals should care about ending abortion for selfish reasons to protect their other rights because if we don't get the right to life right we're not going to get any other rights right and look around the society in the country right now what is happening governors through their draconian policies are ignoring the natural rights of their people to liberty to work to freely associate where they choose and to run their businesses in accordance with their best judgment People, leaders across the country, ignoring the natural right to property against refusing to protect it against the theft, looting, and burning by people who are convinced that America is not great but evil. So interesting. Look at that. Elected leaders are ignoring the natural right to liberty and property. I wonder why. Maybe because nearly 48 years ago, we said that the first and most important of all rights can actually be taken from you and your political betters can define you out of existence as long as you're located six inches away in a womb designed to hold you.
4: But I also think um, in addition to what what you all said, I think it's important to also recognize that this whole personhood conversation isn't new. And basically what you were alluding to in the 1857 Dred Scott decision, what did it say? Blacks might be human, but it doesn't make them persons. 1935 Nuremberg laws in Germany, again, same thing. The Jew might be a human. In fact, they were considered a subclass of human beings. And it's not, We didn't learn from the 1857 Dred Scott decision. We didn't learn from what happened in the Holocaust, 1973 Roe v. Wade decision, when you actually looked, Justice Blackmun basically talking about personhood, denying personhood. But I think there's another aspect to that. When we deny the personhood of a human being, we're relegating them to be property. And what was wrong with slavery? We were literally treating human beings as if they were chattel. We talk about human slavery today with human trafficking and people are quick to get on that bandwagon as they should. But let's also be very clear. When's the last time you met someone that said, listen, I would never traffic a human being, but I don't think we should stop other people from doing that. People know that it's wrong but people will argue all day when it comes to abortion because we've convinced ourselves that the unborn is not a human being or that they might be human even but they're certainly not a person and essentially they're property of the mother so i think there is a danger and i think there's nothing wrong with going back in history to use that because history is also our teacher and if we're not learning those moral lessons we will repeat those same we will repeat them again
1: any other questions? We have, we have a Jeff or a week more, but Jeff, yes. The Trump and Pence administration has taken tangible steps to value uh, human life as created in the image of God to oppose abortion. At the same time, they have reintroduced capital punishment into the federal judiciary. Is that a contradiction? And how do pro-lifers view capital punishment? John, you want to go there?
3: Oftentimes these are pitted against each other, and there are certainly uh, religious philosophers or, school of re- or schools of religious thought that have uh, seen them in the same category. In particular, some Roman Catholic uh, thinkers have seen them both as uh, taking life. I, I think the uh, uh, they're n- they're not necessarily uh, of the same stripe, and here's here's why: the, the, the moral principle is not that it's wrong to take life; it's that it's always wrong to take innocent life. Now, that's the challenge with the. Uh, uh, the the death penalty is getting that right and we don't have a great history of always getting that right and that makes it a really challenging thing and look I, I think this is kind of like you uh, know uh, you know war it's an option but it should be really late on the on the docket right this is the same thing with something like the death penalty but m- being morally opposed to it per se, uh, isn't in the same uh, category as being immorally opposed to abortion because you're talking about the difference between innocent life and and, and non-innocent life. And that, and that's really where the whole rub is. In fact, I would argue that, for example, in the Old Testament, when it talks about the death penalty, it's always reserved for something that either directly attacks God or directly attacks God's image. In other words, it's directly connected with Upholding the dignity and beauty of the Lord of life and life itself. Yeah. The taking of an innocent preborn is anti life. The allowing of the taking of an innocent life without adequate retribution is also an attack on life. So the death penalty, when done well, according to what the Bible describes as this, and we've understood from just war theorists to everyone else, this is kind of all in the same orbit here, has understood that the capital punishment should be reserved as a means for upholding the dignity of life in a society, and that by not doing it would be a compromise to the dignity of life.
1: Interesting. Very great question. Anybody else with any questions from our live audience? If not, I have a, a burning question, another one. The issue of slavery, the issue of the Holocaust, and the issue of abortion. The issue of, let's say, let's go to the issue of the Holocaust. There was no ability to vote that one into the right direction. There was a dictatorship. And yet the issue of, of uh, slavery, there was that ability, except we couldn't come together as a people. And we had a civil war. We now have the, the untold millions of lives that have been taken of the children and the scarring of the women. And we have an opportunity to vote. So the question that I have is, are those three radically different issues are they political issues and how does that frame the voting and what what would i have done what, what could we have done back then differently that maybe we didn't do in the 1850s what happened that, or what didn't happen in the early 1930s in germany when there seemed like there was a way to stop that before it got there and right now what do we do and as it relates to is this a political issue because someone say this is a human rights issue. And then you're, you're kind of scratching your head and saying, oh, maybe it's not a political issue. We've touched on that, but whoever wants to tackle that and maybe riff off that. Well, anything can become political
0: anything can be politicized. That doesn't mean that if and when that happens, it has somehow become a political issue. I mean, we understand that that's a moral and spiritual issue. I mean, one of the miscarriages of justice in the 1850s was that we said that slavery was purely a political issue, right? This is why Douglas in his debates with Lincoln said, I don't really, you know, I support the right of each state to vote it up or down, meaning to ban slavery or make it okay. Like, I don't care. It's just a political issue. You decide for yourself. So for the Christian... We understand that this is a moral and spiritual issue. And if you know your Bible, abortion, morally speaking, is no different than child sacrifice in the Old Testament. As I'm fond of saying, Satan doesn't care the name of the God that you sacrifice your children to. As long as you continue to shove children down his throat, he'll be satisfied, right? He's the dragon in Revelation waiting to devour baby Jesus as Mary's going to give birth. He's behind the slaughter of babies by Herod and by Pharaoh. So we don't have to call him Molech today. He can just be the pagan gods of convenience, career well-being, education, and money. He does not care as long as you continue to feed children down his throat. So politics is merely the art of the possible. It's how we decide how we want to live, how we want to structure our society. And we live in the most unique civilization ever. This is the idea of American exceptionalism. It doesn't mean we're better than other countries by virtue of being American. It just means that the founding of this country and the ideals of this country, based on the premises of natural law that rights spring from your humanity and our founders, even if they weren't born again, they were theists and they believed that these rights came from God, that, those ideas is what provided the moral framework for us to abolish the evil of slavery. And it will provide the same framework for us to abolish the evil of abortion. So this is not a political issue, but it's become politicized. And now we have laws on the book saying you can kill babies in the womb through all nine months of pregnancy. So what is the role of the Christian? To pick up the political tools given to you by people who bled and died to put power into the hands of the people and use your political voice to restore person into the pre-born. Proverbs 31a says, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. So question for you, Christian, what is the best voice you have in America to make it illegal to kill a class of human beings that it is legal to kill? Well, there's a lot of ways that we can use our voice. But the most important would be the political voice. The most important thing would be to stop legalized state sanctioned slaughter of innocents. And then we can deal with other issues. Your political voice is the most important when it comes to ending state sanctioned slaughter.
4: I think there's one other aspect to that, and I agree with everything that you just said. I think it's also important to recognize that perhaps with the Holocaust, these citizens were not able to engage, but we have no excuse. We have no excuse. Even when you look at the issue of slavery, there were actually, that was in the the 1850s, that was actually a four-person election. We only have two options, but at least there, there was a battle between the North and the South, the South wanting slavery, the North saying no. So it's not like it was across the entire United States. That's not the case when it comes to abortion. Today, abortion is legal in every single state of the union, and it is also oftentimes tax-funded, slavery wasn't tax funded. So I think we have to consider we do not have an excuse. We have a moral obligation and a moral responsibility to use our vote to restrain evil. And I do think that when we kind of look at scripture, even when you look at Proverbs 24, 11 and 12, where it says, rescue those who are being led to the slaughter. But then it goes on to say, but what if they say, oh, but we didn't know it was going to happen or we didn't know what was happening, that God does see our hearts. So, again, we are without excuse because, and even when you think, we've going back to the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know, the Good Samaritan was inconvenient, so to speak, in taking care of his neighbor. He exhausted some funds. He took time to actually care and bandage him and rescue him. All we're asking you to do is vote, which you're going to do anyway. How is that inconveniencing you? Again, many people will claim that they're pro-life. But I will always challenge and push them back because if you're saying you have that pro-life conviction— I'm not convinced of that conviction if you won't even put your pencil to paper.
2: Strong words and it's good words. Scott, any thoughts on that? Well, I think, too, there's a relativism issue here that can come into play. People say, well, I'm personally opposed to abortion, Mm -hmm. but I don't want to vote to take someone else's choice away from them. Now, it's very important whenever you hear somebody say, I personally oppose abortion, that you ask a very targeted follow-up question. Why are you personally opposed to abortion? I mean, if abortion does not intentionally kill an innocent human being, why be opposed at all? And nine times out of ten, they'll look at you and say, well, I'm opposed because it's killing a baby. Then just repeat back what they just said to you. Let me see if I understand this right. And be gentle here. Don't be snarky. But say, if I understand you correctly, you personally oppose abortion because you believe it intentionally kills a baby, but you think it should be legal to intentionally kill babies. And wait for the stunned silence to follow. Our culture has confused moral claims with preference claims, and this is something that John at Breakpoint and the Colson Center has addressed in countless uh, pieces and video clips. And it reminds me of something that Chuck Colson said. And John, you correct me if I if I get John, if I get Chuck wrong here. But in Kingdoms in Conflict, uh, Chuck said that the purpose of the Christian community is to hold government to moral account. When we opt out of the political process, we are opting out of the only institution, the church, that can hold government to moral account. Who are we going to leave to hold government to moral account? Who? The university system in this country? The cancel culture? I mean, who's going to do that? That's us. That's why we've got to be involved.
3: You know, I I think there's this poison that has infected 21st century uh, Westerners, especially Americans and even Christian Americans. And that is this uh, poison of moral evolution, that somehow we're more morally enlightened. We're we're somehow more morally developed. I mean, you can see that in Justice Kennedy's uh, writings in the Obergefell decision on a legal level. But I mean, just like everyday level, right? Uh, uh, Professor Robbie George uh, often talks about how when he asked his students at Princeton University where would they be on the slavery issue he's like it's it's remarkable they all would have been abolitionists yeah. you know no one would have been on the wrong side of history and he, and he notes that that's really just ridiculous because we are so influenced by our culture and i look at our time and our place right now and i look at such a deeply in you know embedded evil like abortion And that really, we we we, we, and then then compare that, for example, to the famous stories of German Christians who, you know, sang their hymns louder on Sunday morning so they wouldn't hear the trains going by, uh, packed with 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 Jews and so on. And, and and we realize the moral culpability not only of those who did the evil, but those who knew it mm-hmm. and actually wouldn't say it. And, and I, I somehow think we have this blind spot because of this belief that well, man, I'm so glad we're past that. You know, I'm so glad that we've evolved past that evil. This is the evil of our day. Mm-hmm. And 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 look, this is we're not even asking anyone to take up arms. It's mm-hmm. the vote. Yes. We don't know where the next child
1: abduction is going to take place, do we? Um, We don't know where the next George Floyd issue is going to take place, you know, where someone's going to be brutally beaten. And we don't know um, where the next crime that that makes us just horrified as we watch TV. We don't know where those things and when they're going to happen. But I was outside of Charlotte. This past Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, and I saw a building where we know, we know in the morning that 15 cars or more are going to arrive. And there are going to be women that walk in that think they have no other option. They've been told that by culture, by their boyfriend or by by someone that that's the thing they need to do. And we know that 15, at least 15 children at that place are going to die. I can't, I've tried to talk to my kids about this. It's inconceivable that I could drive down the road and that I could say, hey, did you know that Jews are killed there every day? And that we would drive on by and we would not be horrified. It doesn't it doesn't compute in our in their little in their minds. They can't wrap their brain around it. But but I know that I can drive by that place. And I know. I know there are going to be children that are lost forever to abortion. Elections matter. They matter at the local level. They matter at the state level. They matter at the national level. I wonder if there's any parting thoughts that you would have as we think about this? Um, as, you know, we've, I've asked a lot of directed questions, but there may be something in you that you might say, if I had two or three more sentences to say to, the, to America about why this is important, what would you say? Anybody from our panel?
2: My, Scott. my three sentences would be this. When people tell me Jesus wasn't a Republican, I say, you're right. He wasn't. Uh, but it doesn't follow from that that some political parties are more in line with biblical truth than others. And a party that is sworn to the proposition that an entire class of human beings can be set aside to be killed is not a party in line with biblical truth. So just saying Jesus wasn't a Democrat or a Republican does not relieve us of our responsibility to act biblically and as best as possible in a fallen world, promote the good and restrain the evil far as we can.
1: Yeah, any others before we go?
0: We talked about the parable of the Good Samaritan this evening, and I think it just bears repeating. The Levite and the priest who would be like today's pastors probably were opposed to street mugging. They probably passed that bleeding victim on the road and said, I wouldn't have beaten him up, I'm a pastor. But when they had the opportunity to save a bleeding victim, they did not do a single thing. In fact, Luke's gospel says they actually walked by on the other side of the road. So they actually went out of their way to avoid their spiritual responsibility to love their neighbor, hold back those staggering towards slaughter. I think so many of us today, and I'm, I'm not here to necessarily lambast pastors, but we all bear responsibility, right? The pulpit has been deafeningly silent on the issue of abortion. Francis Schaefer once said, every abortion clinic ought to have a sign out front. This says open with the permission of the church of Jesus Christ. And so many of us drive by on the way to our church, on the way to our job, or on the way to prep our sermon on Saturday night. And we drive by on the other side of the road of our local abortion mill, Whereas Paul said, we know children are being killed. We know image bearers are having their arms ripped off their body. And we're supposed to, we're supposed to not be single issue voters. We're supposed to Uh, protect all life because we're pro-life and so therefore we'll turn a blind eye to the state sanctioned slaughter of a million babies in order to improve quality outside the womb no this is outrageous this is scandalous if we don't get the right to life right we're not going to get any other rights right and we're going to continue to see a government that denies the first and most important of all rights to encroach on every other right that flows from that right so we should be opposed to abortion for unselfish reasons because we're christians and these are our image bearers but also for selfish reasons because if that government doesn't get that right right, and we don't hold them accountable to get that right right, they're gonna encroach on all of our other rights. This is not the last best hope spiritually, only the gospel is that. But America is the last best hope for many other ways, for protecting liberty, for protecting life, mm-hmm. and for being a bastion of hope that's built on the premises of natural law, which come from our creator. If we don't get that right, what kind of nation are you gonna to hand to your children and your grandchildren?
4: Well, that's actually where I was going in terms of, I think we're actually going to have to give an account to the next generation. because so I believe they're going to look at us and say, well, what did you do? How did you intervene? Well, I didn't because it was inconvenient. Or perhaps we'll have to answer, I know, but did you know that they were going to die? Did you know they were going to kill them? Yes, but I valued money over their lives. Because I, I think that's often what people are doing is they have an opportunity To vote God's priority, which is life, because we're image bearers of God, and they're choosing their pocketbook, or they're choosing other issues. And so we cannot prioritize other issues over life. Again, we have to remember, on the ballot, life and death are on that ballot. All we're doing is we're asking you to vote in a way that we can not only restrain evil, but we can help save lives. It's not overly complicated.
1: Any last words, John?
3: Voting is just the very beginning of a Christian's responsibility uh, to culture. It's not the only one. We shouldn't stop there. Uh, we've got to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. Uh, and you know, I can I can say that you know I, I can vote and still say that we should treat each other with kindness and respect. I can vote and still say you know that we should be uh, actually engaging with various ways to serve the poor and serve the outcast and serve those that are in crisis situations. Whatever these aren't mutually exclusive options, uh, but, but voting—and I think we, we've kind of all said this—this this is this is the first step. This is the first step of, of civic responsibility, of stewarding the, the gift that God has given us to be in this time and in, and in this place, and to deal with the issues that that we have to to deal with. It's it's, it's not the only thing we'll do, but we can't do less than that. Yeah.
1: I'd kind of like to close our time in the way that I typically close any time that I talk about abortion. I've spoken all over the country about this issue. It's uh, something that I'm very passionate about. Uh, I don't know in our lives that we can give ourselves uh, to anything more important than this. Taxes, zoning, uh, you know, all those things, we may come at them from different problem-solving methods. But but this issue of life is one that, that it's going to mean something. And I want my life to count for things that are going to matter for 10,000 years from now or in eternity. And so when I think about the issue of life, I typically close this way. I tell the story of a missionary family who... When they had come back from furlough and they were on a vacation, um, they had been given a, a a house near a pond and and it was just a place that they could relax and kind of unwind as you know cross cultural ministry is is diffi- difficult and their their batteries need to be recharged and so they were there at this place and mom was working in the kitchen and was doing some things and dad was in this shed tinkering around with some things and the kids were out in front in the yard away from the pond but they it was there and they were playing and their little 3 year old brother uh, he walked down toward the water when no one was watching, and there was a little, a little pier there, and there was a, a boat tied with a rope to the, to the pier there at the post. And he, he, as a natural little boy would do, he decided that he wanted to get in that boat. And as we all know, when you're getting into a boat, it's you know our our footing can slip, and the little boy who did not know how to swim fell into the water and made a splash. And the kids heard it and saw that their brother wasn't there. And they they screamed. And at this point, the dad came running and he saw the ripples and he ran to where the ripples were emanating. And he dove into the water and he was desperately seeking the the, the body of his little boy. And as he was down there, Uh, he could not find his son. And he exhausted all his breath And he came up and he grabbed another breath of air and he went back down and on his way back down a few feet under the water, he reached out and he felt the little boy's arms holding on to a post three feet underneath the water. And he grabbed his little boy's hands and he unpried them and he went up to the surface and he took his little boy and by this time, mom and the kids were on the little sandy beach and no one could say a word. Everyone's nerves were shot. And for about 10 minutes, no one said anything. And finally, the dad broke the silence by saying this. He said, son, what were you doing down there? Holding on to that post under the water. Why were you doing that? And that little boy, he looked to his dad in a way that only a son could look at his dad and say, dad, I was waiting on you. Because I knew you would come. You're my dad. Ladies and gentlemen across the United States, panelists here tonight, our live audience, people are waiting for us to stand for life. And the first way that we can do it is by showing up at a ballot box and voting biblical values. And there's not a bigger one probably on the ballot this year than the issue of life. So on behalf of My Faith Votes, the Colson Center and Life Training Institute, we thank you for joining us. Know that the stakes are high and we're grateful that you're with us and may God bless you as you vote your values at the ballot box this year.
0: Wow! 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 Did Paul Isaacs just drop some tear-jerking bombs at the end there? Paul is incredible. Scott, John, Janique—incredible individuals fighting for life—and we were blessed to gather together to have these conversations to equip you to stand for life. Life and death is on the ballot in November, friends, and Christians must vote for life for the sake of pre-born image bearers created in the image of God, but also for the sake of our own rights, this country, and the posterity of America whose rights it will be very easy to take away as long as we can deny the right to life to other image bearers of God. This was for you. Please share this very broadly. Listen, we're a little over two weeks out from the most important election for our unborn neighbors and for liberty itself. So share this episode broadly. Leave the show a rating and review. Give us five stars. Let us know what you think so we can climb up the ratings. And if iTunes is not too discriminatory against pro-lifers, maybe it will show up on people's feed who are not pro-life and so they'll be challenged to think differently. Thank you so much for tuning in. We will see you next week. Godspeed.